My name is Jean Dernford, and I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My partner and I, uh, both women, were married in California when we were living there. I can't believe that somebody could possibly take that away. We both had been married to men in the past, and nobody was taking away that marriage license. This is Cece from Lewisburg, West Virginia. I'm completely shaking in my boots about the concept of undoing uh, the right for anybody to marry. Um, I have been a lesbian my entire life, and this has made uh, my life equal to everyone. And the idea of it being removed is just appalling, absolutely appalling. Who can tell me who I get to love and who I want to marry? In 2015, the Supreme Court ruling Obergefell v. Hodges found same-sex couples have a fundamental right to marry. But last month, the court struck down Roe v. Wade, taking away the once fundamental right to an abortion. In a concurring opinion to that ruling, Justice Clarence Thomas suggested Obergefell could be next. That's led to the Respect for Marriage Act. It would require the federal government to require both same-sex and interracial married couples. The House passed it last week with full Democratic support and 47 Republicans. Now it's up for a vote in the Senate. But what's in the bill? And does it have a chance to pass a gridlock Senate? We'll get into all that and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to have your questions answered on future shows or to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. How we care for our minds affects how we experience life. So it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and live chat therapy sessions. And you can be matched with your therapist in under 48 hours. NPR listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash 1A. We're discussing the Respect for Marriage Act. Joining us now is Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin. She's the first openly gay politician to be elected to the United States Senate. We appreciate you joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And just to note, we reached out to Republican Senators Susan Collins and Rob Portman to join the conversation, and they declined the opportunity. They've both expressed their support for the bill if it comes to the floor for a vote. Why does Congress need to pass the Respect for Marriage Act now? The same reasoning the court used to overturn Roe versus Wade could be applied to other precedent they have set in the past, including access to contraception and and marriage equality. And so many people feel as though they lack certainty about the validity of their marriages moving forward. And marriage is so important in terms of protecting families. With it comes numerous rights and responsibilities. And when you fear that those are in jeopardy, it is time to act. And so act we will. Republican Senator Marco Rubio recently told a CNN reporter this bill was a, quote, stupid waste of time. And this happened as he was entering an elevator that you were standing on. What did you say to him? I presented my arguments of why it is uh, necessary, just as I have with you. The 
future validity of marriage equality is placed in jeopardy, not just by the Clarence Thomas concurring opinion, but the entire Dobbs decision. And people are worried. So I was so heartwarmed to see the bipartisan vote in the House of Representatives last Tuesday. A week later, we are trying to make sure that we have the 60 votes necessary in the United States Senate to pass this legislation. Well, Senator Rubio reaffirmed his position during a news conference in Tampa on Friday. The chances of gay marriage being outlawed are zero. The chances that Nancy Pelosi will endorse me in my Senate re-election are higher than the chances of that going anywhere. I don't think we should be spending time on a non-issue and a non-problem. It's as simple as that. I just don't. Not when people are paying $4.66 for gas. Not when inflation and prices for some of the most basic goods and services in our country are crushing middle-class Americans. Now, some Republican senators may not be opposed to the legislation on its face, but they don't see it as a priority issue. How will you convince them to vote for it? What I would say is, if you're a senator who supports marriage equality, then you need to support the Respect for Marriage Act to protect this freedom and the right for same-sex and interracial marriages. Um, You know, today, Americans overwhelmingly support the constitutional right to marry, uh, for an individual to marry who they love without interference from politicians and government. And that's where we need to land on this. There are perhaps a number of different camps that my fellow senators find themselves in. One is they're vocally supportive of this legislation, and that's great. Others are vocally supportive of marriage equality, but are undecided publicly where they're going to vote on this bill. And and that's where I see our majority in the Senate coming from, is those who do support marriage equality, but say it's theoretical whether this is in threat or not. I think we need to codify it now and move on. There are 25 states that still have same-sex marriage bans on the books. How would this legislation impact married same-sex couples moving to those states or same-sex couples seeking to get married in those states? Well, I think we would see the sort of legal chaos that we've seen on the abortion care question since the Dobbs decision came down. There would be a lot of legal activity, but let's not forget how important the rights and responsibilities that marriage confers really are. The access to your spouse in an emergency situation, like in a hospital. If the marriage is not recognized, you are a legal stranger. Can you imagine not being allowed in to provide comfort in an emergency situation? The sort of legal rights and responsibilities that marriage confers are vital. And so this bill would protect those rights regardless of whether an individual state has a same-sex marriage ban on the books. That is exactly correct. There's limited opportunity to bring bills to the Senate floor before the August reset. Bills focus on the economy and semiconductor shortages are still awaiting a vote. Does this bill need to appear before the Senate this week? You know, I do think that it should occur prior to our August recess, if at all possible. 
It's one of those issues that is capturing people's attention right now, especially with the really strong vote in uh, the United States House. And I think our bigger challenge than the amount of time is the fact that we're not over this pandemic and we have a number of people out. <laughs> so we will have to uh, uh, adjust to that. But uh, I think that we should do what is overwhelmingly supported by the American public these days and, uh, and get on with uh, all the other important missions we have at this point. The pandemic notwithstanding, do you have the Democratic votes you need in addition to those 10 Republican votes you're still seeking? I believe we do. I frankly think uh, when all is said and done, there will be more than 10 Republican votes. We're doing well in gaining the support we need to pass this. And uh, I expect a pretty strong bipartisan vote. That's Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin, lead sponsor of new legislation that would protect the right to same-sex marriage. Senator Baldwin, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. The fight for marriage equality has been decades in the making, but public opinion on this issue has changed drastically over the past 10 years. Journalist and author Sasha Eisenberg details this in history in his book, The Engagement, America's Quarter-Century Struggle Over Same-Sex Marriage. Sasha, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Melissa Murray. She's a constitutional law professor at New York University and co-host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast. Melissa, we appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Melissa, what was the legal argument protecting the right to same-sex marriage as established in that 2015 Supreme Court ruling, Obergefell v. Hodges? So Obergefell said that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment guarantees the right to marry as one of the fundamental liberties that it protects, and that that understanding of liberty applies equally to same-sex couples as it does to opposite-sex couples. And the court then went further to note that under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, same-sex couples had the right to marry because a denial of that right would deny same-sex couples equal protection under the law. So it is principally understood as a due process opinion, but there is an equal protection component. Um, But as we know from the Dobbs opinion, uh, the due process, the substantive due process line of cases has been called into question by some members of the court. Well, the plaintiff in that case, Jim Obergefell, joined us back in 2020, and he spoke with us about his concerns for the future of same-sex marriage rights with conservative Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett facing nomination. I don't think the right itself will be overturned, but my concern around Amy Barrett's nomination is that she has made it clear she is opposed to marriage equality. She believes it should be handled by the states. She wants us to go to our state houses, to the people on the street, to plead for our right to participate in the right of marriage. Melissa, how do you respond to Jim's concerns after the most recent Supreme Court session? Well, Jim and I both testified before Congress a couple of weeks ago about the growing threat to other fundamental rights, including the right to marry. And, you know, he is exactly right. I don't know that the threat to same-sex marriage is going to be one where an imminent overruling of Obergefell is in the offing. But Jim is exactly right um, about this idea that we will see a proliferation of perhaps religious objections to same-sex marriage. And I think that's the game plan that they did with Roe. You simply chip away at this right. You make it harder for same-sex couples to exist and seek services in the public sphere. And you essentially normalize that same-sex couples can expect different treatment in the public sphere. And then 
20 years, 30 years down the road, it's not that hard to contemplate withdrawing the right completely. So again, Roe is the template here, simply chipping away at something for 40 or 50 years and then withdrawing it entirely. But in the interim, you can make life incredibly difficult and undignified for those who are in the crosshairs of this argument. Now, Sasha, the fight for marriage equality in the U.S. started decades before the Obergefell case entered the Supreme Court. In 1991, Hawaii was the first state to hear legal challenges to same-sex marriage. What made the circumstances of that case so unique? Well, it it ended up being the first time that a court recognized that the fundamental right to marriage could extend to same-sex couples when the Hawaii Supreme Court ruled in, in 1993. You know, and that case basically came out of nowhere. There were three couples who had engaged in a basically a publicity stunt organized by a local activist who did not have a legal strategy. Um, When they ended up suing the state in 1991, uh, nobody thought that they had a chance of winning. And some some really freakish events on the Hawaii Supreme Court in 1992 um, made the court receptive to arguments that that no other court had been been receptive to um, in in an earlier spate of of cases in the 1970s where where people had tried to mount similar arguments. And and that is what made this a national issue. The Defense Defense of Marriage Act that we're, we're talking about here. The 1996 bill was basically the effort of uh, largely Republicans in Congress to insulate other governments in the United States, the federal government and the 49 other states from what they saw was uh, uh, the imminent threat that that Hawaii would start marrying same-sex couples and that those couples would go to uh, demand recognition and benefits elsewhere. What happened on the Hawaii Supreme Court? Uh, there was a it's a five member court and uh, over the course of a couple months that summer three of the members turned over um, just crazy actuarial things somebody hit a mandatory retirement age another uh, justice uh, passed away the third justice had had to recuse himself because he heard it at the lower court and the average age of the Hawaii Supreme Court dropped by 20 years it became a majority non wasp court which is really unusual in in uh, the American judiciary at, the, at that point and um, much younger and more liberal. And so they were receptive to arguments under the Hawaii state constitution that um, that that excluding same-sex couples from from marriage amounted to uh, a form of impermissible uh, discrimination. Now, Melissa, the fight surrounding same-sex marriage centered on granting same-sex couples the same rights as heterosexual couples. Massachusetts became the first state to legalize same-sex marriage back in 2003. What were the legal arguments brought by plaintiffs there? Well, one of the issues brought in the uh, good the Goodridge dis, uh, litigation when Massachusetts was the fact that for many years the states had undergone a really sort of painstaking transformation where they had first allowed same sex couples to foster children, then to adopt children. So many same sex couples actually had children in many of these states where they were pressing for marriage equality. And one of the things the Goodridge litigation acknowledged that was that marriage itself was good for children. And these were couples that were families, families with children. And so denying them and their children access to marriage rendered an injury to these families. So that was an important part. And it was a a really painstaking litigation strategy that was orchestrated to sort of chip away at these questions of family rights so that you could pave the way for same-sex marriage, that it was all inextricably intertwined. So that's the Goodridge decision, which in 2003 um, allowed the first state in the union, uh, Massachusetts, to recognize same-sex marriage. And then soon there came a number after that, all building on the same logic. 
We got this email from Reed who says, considering that Justice Thomas's marriage was made possible by the Supreme Court ruling based on the 14th Amendment, his opinions in Dobbs are enough to force him to recuse himself on any such rulings regarding same-sex marriage. And Clarence Thomas is, of course, in an interracial marriage with Jenny Thomas. But Melissa, remind us there's not really a process in place that can force a Supreme Court justice to recuse themselves from a case. No, the court is not bound by the same judicial ethics requirements as other lower federal courts. Uh, So Justice Thomas gets to recuse himself from cases when he believes that there is a conflict. But um, if he does not think that there is a conflict, he's not under any obligation to do so. So um, notably in his concurrence to the Dobbs opinion, although Justice Thomas asked the court to reconsider the entire line of substantive due process precedents, including Obergefell, he curiously left out Loving versus Virginia the 1967 case that allowed for the legalization of interracial marriage in this country. Melissa, in 2003, the Supreme Court ruled in Lawrence v. Texas that criminal punishment for sodomy was unconstitutional. And this is another case Justice Clarence Thomas recently said the court should reconsider, and that came in his concurring opinion overturning Roe v. Wade. What was the significance of this ruling in the context of LGBTQ rights? So the Lawrence decision, which came out in 2003, said that the state of Texas could not have a ban on same-sex sodomy, that doing so violated the fundamental rights of uh, gay men and women uh, or any person who is engaged in a sexual relationship outside of marriage. And the court specifically noted that the state could not use the criminal law to dictate majoritarian preferences. The decision was widely viewed as opening the door to same-sex marriage. Um, And Justice Scalia, as Sasha noted earlier, um, in his dissent from the Lawrence opinion, said that, you know, same-sex marriage was sure to come. It would inexorably flow from this decision, and that proved to be correct. But I cannot emphasize enough, um, although Lawrence is incredibly important to the LGBTQ rights movement, it's also critically important to anyone who chooses to live their adult intimate lives outside of marriage. It essentially provides for a right to sex outside of marriage. And if it is called into question, it not only affects same-sex couples, it affects anyone who is having an adult relationship and is not married. Well, as we heard earlier, Congress is now considering legislation that would protect the right to same-sex marriage and the right to contraception. And again, this comes after Justice Thomas suggested those Supreme Court cases should be reconsidered. Melissa, why is it important to explicitly codify these rights in federal law? So the codification in federal law provides um, a way of avoiding the question that the court sets up in the Dobbs opinion. The Dobbs opinion makes clear that there is no right to abortion, and Justice Thomas suggests that there is no right to these other things, a right to contraception, a right to same-sex marriage, because these rights are not specifically enumerated in the Constitution. The fact of codification provides a statutory avenue to acknowledging and recognizing these rights. And I want to be clear Congressional action on this front is incredibly important, but I think it is likely if these laws are passed that they will be challenged. And if they are challenged on constitutional grounds, when they get to the Supreme Court, which is, I think, inevitable, they will still face the same six to three conservative supermajority that decided Dobbs. So this is a really important first step, um, but it's really critically important for us to understand that the real issue here may actually be the court and its composition. Melissa, what are you looking for as the next Supreme Court session starts? 
Well, there are a number of really important cases. If this was a barn burner of a term, uh, next term is going to burn some more barns as well. So in addition to affirmative action, there's a really important case called 303 Creative versus Elenis. And this really does go to the heart of what I was talking about earlier. This is a case in which a wedding videographer has refused to provide services to a same-sex couple who wants their wedding videographed. And uh, the question here is whether Colorado's anti-discrimination law prevents the videographer from denying the couple those services. So it's an explicit collision between religious liberty and equal rights for same-sex couples. And that's going to be huge next term. That's Melissa Murray, constitutional law professor at NYU and co-host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast. Melissa, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Remember, you can join future conversations by downloading the 1A Vox Pop app and leaving us a message. Now let's get back to our conversation about same-sex marriage. And joining the conversation now is Mike Madrid. He's a GOP strategist and co-founder of the Lincoln Project. That's a conservative political action committee opposing former President Trump. Mike, we appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. Mike, in 2008, Californians passed a ballot measure and constitutional amendment to ban same-sex marriage in the state. How did conservatives in the progressive-leaning state build public support for Proposition 8? Well, there's always been a base constituency for this uh, uh, type of uh, cultural issue. Um, Again, abortion was surpassed as a previous interviewee mentioned by uh, the same-sex debate in about that same time frame. Uh, organizing through the evangelical church community primarily, uh, which was consolidating um, and even some of the early um, movements away from the Democratic Party, from blue-collar voters of faith, started to crystallize in the form of these these cultural issues. And in California, not unlike the rest of the country, we began to grapple with with a whole host of these issues. Um, Keep in mind, in 2008, of course, what you were seeing was this, the, the real divergence between the two parties um, but there were, uh, on this issue specifically, but there was still a lot of support even amongst Democrats. Barack Obama, of course, in 2008 was opposed to same-sex marriage. Republicans, I think, trying to seek advantage in places like California and other states forced the issue uh, by putting it before the voters. And of course, in that time frame, since 12, 13 years since, We've seen a pretty uh, significant sea change in Republican voter opinion on this issue. Well, here's former President Obama speaking on the campaign trail in 2008. With respect to gay marriage, I I do not support uh, gay marriage, but I support a very strong version of civil unions uh, where I think the state has to recognize the same rights and responsibilities for gay people, same-sex couples, as they do for anybody else. Because the state is not a religious institution. Sasha, explain more about the changes that were happening within the Democratic Party and among voters more broadly that led to Obama's eventual shift in opinion on this issue. Yeah, what we heard from Obama there was basically the position that was shared by every national or ambitious Democrat in the country in the 2000s. Vermont created the institution of civil unions in 2000, which were all the rights and benefits of marriage under a name that was thought to be less provocative, less controversial. Um, And that became the place where not just Obama, Joe Biden, John Kerry, the Clintons ended up this sort of third position on what had been a two-sided issue. And over the course of that decade, though, public opinion moved left. And um, 
what Obama realized by 2011 was he was falling out of the mainstream of his party on this by not supporting same-sex marriage. A majority of Americans around 2011 uh, for the first time supported what we now call marriage equality. And Obama came to the recognition that that it was going to be very difficult for him to go and get renominated by his party in the summer of 2012, being seen as sort of to the right of the consensus uh, there. And so there was this sort of long, quiet, deliberate process within the White House that I outlined in my book through uh, uh, the second half of 2011 and early 2012 to sort of find a stage um, literally and figuratively, on which Obama could explain that he had, had, as he put it, evolved on this issue. And um, all those plans were blown up when, when Joe Biden basically blurted out uh, a few weeks ahead of, ahead of schedule uh, his view and, and forced Obama to make this change. But it was a recognition that the Democratic Party, um, which, had, which had been divided on this issue, was now pretty close to, to, to um, having a new consensus on it. Now, by 2014, 35 states, including the District of Columbia, had legalized same-sex marriages. Sasha, how were proponents of the movement successful in shifting public opinion? So a lot of it was talking about why marriage matters. Um, you know, what we heard from Melissa in, in the last segment was the talk about the, the legal rights and benefits that, are, that accrue to couples who are married and the harm that, that they experience um, when they're excluded from that. And a lot of the early messaging through the 90s and 2000s was focused on, on this, the kind of legal architecture of marriage and what that was worth. Um, but what ad- advocates realized was that they were um, failing to explain to persuadable voters on this issue um, what the uh, uh, symbolic, spiritual uh, uh, value of being acknowledged by a community and by your your state and government as as married meant. And that's why folks like Obama could say something that said, I think that we can basically give gays and lesbians all everything that they demand and not have to call it marriage. And so the, the campaigns between 2008 and 2012 especially made this shift that they were going to put gay and lesbian couples front and center. They were going to explain that gay and le- gays and lesbians wanted to get married, not for just hospital visitation and the ability to share property and all of those legal um, benefits, but for the same reason that straight people do, that you know they meet somebody and they can't imagine their lives without them, that they want to spend every day of their life with somebody else, that they you know, want um, that sense of interdependence and to be recognized by their families as, as, um, as a sort of inextricable unit. And that helped move public opinion uh, on, in some sense, not from uh, people who are anti-marriage to being pro-gay marriage, but from people who are comfortable with the civil unions alternative to recognizing that that was in itself discriminatory. Now, in the early 2010s, some key Republicans were also voicing their support for same-sex marriage, including former Republican Vice President Dick Cheney and Republican Senator Rob Portman. You know, freedom means freedom for everyone. And uh, uh, as many of you know, uh, one of my daughters is gay and um, something that... uh, that uh, we've lived with for a long time in in our family. Um, I think people ought to be free to enter into any kind of union they wish, uh, any kind of, of arrangement they wish. I had a very personal experience, uh, which is my son came to Jane, my wife and I, um, told us that he was gay and that uh, it was not a choice and that, you know, he, that's just part of who he is and he'd been that way ever since he could remember. And that launched an interesting process for me, which was kind of rethinking my position 
uh, you know, talking to my pastor and other religious leaders and uh, going through a, a process of, at the end, changing my position on the issue. That was Dick Cheney speaking at the National Press Club in 2009 and Senator Portman speaking with CNN in 2013. Mike, what was the significance of hearing this from Republican political leadership? Well, it was extraordinarily um, significant, especially Dick Cheney. And again, Dick Cheney uh, was public about this issue even prior to those years at the same time that President George W. Bush was seeking kind of advantage by placing the codification of same-sex marriage on initiatives in states um, in, in 2006. Um, and 2004 became a, a, an issue between him and John Kerry. Uh, Dick Cheney was out there saying, I, I support you know, same-sex marriage. So th- this, this division has kind of always been there. It's ironic to think that Dick Cheney was the first you know, major politician at the presidential or vice presidential level to come out and support same-sex marriage was very challenging um, for him in the Republican uh, Party because at that time you were talking about 20% support levels amongst the GOP for same-sex marriage. And the Cheneys, uh, then I would argue now, have have you know basically impeccable conservative uh, credentials and bona fides. But the the, the really important point uh, with Cheney and with Portman here was that um, the change that occurred in public opinion was directly correlates to people's knowledge of somebody who was gay. And in the early two thousands, heading up to twenty ten. Because some of these politicians were bucking their parties, were bucking public opinion, it gave a permission structure for people to be more public about their sexuality. And then there was this realization that virtually everybody in America had a family friend or a, a member of their family um, who was gay. And, and that, in our polling, showed was really the most significant change um, is when people had a personal connection, somebody who knew somebody who was gay, that dramatically changed in a very short period of time how people felt about the same-sex marriage issue. Sasha, how has the perception of marriage as a religious institution changed over time? Well, you know, I think that one of the things that's really remarkable is how much gays and lesbians have kind of ignited... um, a public discussion about the importance of marriage. Uh, you know, there was, uh, when this debate started sort of nationally in the 1990s, straight people, religious and non-religious, had, had largely lost their, their interest in marriage. Divorce rates were rising. People were getting married later and later. And gays and lesbians forced Americans to talk about what marriage means. And that was a, a conversation that took place in Congress and before the Supreme Court and state courts. But it's also something that took place within religious denominations and re- within labor unions and all sorts of groups that had to, to grapple with what marriage um, means to individuals and to the, to, to the broader community. And I think the country has a better understanding of of marriage now as a result of having gone through that sort of generation-long debate. Melissa talked earlier about the sort of default that the law gives to um, married couples when it comes to custody and, and property and stuff like that. But there was also just sort of a default understanding in our culture that marriage was the institution by which um, you, you know, uh, sort of stabilize your your relationship with somebody, but we've never really been forced in in any recent time to talk about why that is and what it represents to people. And um, these arguments came up in legislatures and in courts and in legal briefings, but also just in you know individual households, um, uh, both with gay and lesbian um, uh, 
members, as as Mike talks about, but but also straight people who had to to reckon with this. And I and I think that that there's a marriage means more to Americans as a result of having gone through that. Mike, how divisive of an issue does this remain within the Republican Party? And, and do you believe this legislation in the Senate can get the votes it needs to pass? Well, let me answer the second part. First, yes, I do think that they can get there. I think that they will get there. I'm, I'm hopeful that they will. Um, this issue does remain divisive, but far less so than it has in the past. The question really is, will the Republican Party devolve and start to move backwards um, in terms of restricting uh, rights and rights of Americans, or will it continue on the path of progressing the way the rest of society in this country has? That's Mike Madrid. He's a GOP analyst and co-founder of The Lincoln Project. Also with us, Sasha Eisenberg. He's a journalist and author of the book, The Engagement, America's Quarter-Century Struggle Over Same-Sex Marriage. Sasha, Mike, we appreciate you speaking with us. Today's producer was Chris Remington. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. 